Welcome to the Future Hero Podcast. My name is Baxter. Thank you for pressing play. I bring different offerings on this podcast, and one of the three or four that I offer is interviews. And I've been lucky enough to interview some people that are close to me, the mostly hoopers so far. But I'm really, really excited to bring this next interview. And this will probably be more interview than conversation. One of my just... I don't know. I'm honestly a fan of my guest, to be honest. His name is Adam Dipert. If you're from the flow world like me, you probably know him as a flow artist. But he, like all of us, has many different layers and projects in mind. And we're going to talk about one of his projects today. And, I mean, we've been, I've been trying to get him interviewed forever to, on my podcast. I asked him, like, a long, long time ago. And uh, we were never able to work it out with our schedules but then I was at a party this past weekend, and Adam was talking about his new project, which is what I want to focus on today. And I was just blown away and was like, I wish we were at my studio right now. And so I mentioned to Adam, I said, Adam, can, is there any way we can make this happen? And three or four days later, you're here. And so I want to welcome Adam. Adam, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. And I really am just stoked to have you here. Um, I'll give a little history for people. Um, I I don't remember when we met, but I definitely had known about you before. And we're both from, well, we're not both from, but we live in North Carolina. And you live in Raleigh, and I live in, in Chapel Hill, which are really close to each other, like 30 minutes away. And I had known about you being this uh, flow person, but like, you know, I was so, I've been so entrenched in hooping that I haven't necessarily paid attention to the art that's being made in other flow worlds. Like I know them and I respect them and all that, but I, like as far as like knowing what they do, I, I didn't really know. And I remember the first time I saw you perform, I'm pretty sure it was at the Flojo. Mm -hmm. Would that have been possible? That's possible. Okay. I think that's where it was. And I saw you do your act and was just blown away by it. Honestly, I, I was just not just, I mean, every part of it, I remember digging. I mean, uh, you know, I, I'm not a super tech guy, but I really respect it. I'm just not drawn into it, but it was super technical. But then it was also just flowy, which is what I'm into. And I really saw your personality and, and how you put your show together, you know. And so that sort of hooked me. And, um, you know, I had a uh, flow spec for you at that <laughs> point. And then I got to know you. You know, and we had a couple of talks, and I think you guys will see as as this talk goes on that um, you know it's. I really enjoy the way you express, and I also enjoy, you know, and this is the bulk of what we're going to get into is your your you know your emphasis on science, and just I'm not from the science world, but I have a mad respect for it, mm. you know, and I'm one of those people that I think is I think we're growing in number, but I'm one of those sort of spiritual science people. Mm -hmm. You know, like that, that that doesn't see this tug of war between the two at all. But actually, like, you know, for me, spirituality is our context in life. Mm. And science explains the context. Right. Yeah, it's it's not for describing spirituality. Right. It's just not the type of uh, question it's designed to answer. Right, right. And I just love its ability or its willingness almost to be wrong. <laughs> as much as to be right, you know? It's one of the things I like about it. Yeah. You can yeah. prove it wrong. Totally, totally. Well, can you give us a little bit of background about 
sort of, you know, who is Adam Dipert and just a little bit of a bio. Yeah. So, um, I grew up mostly in Ohio and, uh, on the Gulf coast of Florida and, uh, just to jump right into like the really hard part that motivated who I became is that when I was uh, 15, my father died from cancer. I'm sorry. And when that happened, I had this deep appreciation for the life that I was currently living. Mm. And as I thought about it, I was just like, okay, that's going to happen to me, but it hasn't happened yet. Let's go. Game on. Let's right. do this. Right. <laughs> you know? And that was at 15. And that was at 15. So, um, yeah, I was reading like, you know, Thich Nhat Hanh and Dalai Lama and um, a bunch of Eastern philosophy books. Um, and so that really helped to lead me to comfort with the situation. Mm. Um, and then life goes on. High school's hard. Uh, when I was a senior in high school, uh, I got kicked out of my house and had to move into an apartment and graduate high school on my own, which, uh, I mean, I still had a loving family and they were totally awesome and, uh, definitely gave me support, but that was, that was a tough moment. Mm. <laughs> you know. And it was during that moment. The reason I bring this up is mm -hmm. that, um, it was during that moment, uh, when I was living in an apartment by myself that kind of realized who I was hanging out with and I just needed to change my friend set. Mm. And so I was just like, yo, y'all got to go. I need something different in order to make this work. And it was during that time that I ended up kind of like going through all my things again. And I found my flower sticks hmm. and I'm just hanging out in my apartment, 18 years old, start playing with the flower sticks, start really getting into it. Uh, I start seeing the relationship between cylinders interacting with other cylinders and how they're rolling on top of each other and visualizing how that interaction occurs. Um, I was taking a physics class at the time, and so the relationship between the center of mass of the object and its angular momentum was a very relevant thing that I was actively moving with. And um, within, I don't know, maybe six months, I had worn out my Crystal Sticks uh, VHS. <laughs> right? Perfect. <laughs> it was all lines, you know, you barely hear the audio, all that stuff. And... Um, and I just realized this was super important. It satisfied my mathematical interest. It satisfied my physical interest. I had been a soccer player all through my youth. I played instruments. I did art. I did lots of math. And this just satisfied all of those things for me. Hmm. And so, um, so, yeah, I was just in like small town Ohio. And I realized that I was going to dedicate myself to this. And uh, later... I ended up meeting somebody. Uh, my mom got remarried and I got a new sister and she had been doing Renaissance festivals and we were talking about this and I'm telling her, man, this thing is just so important and I just, uh, it's, it's valuable and it's, I have to do this. And she was like, oh yeah, the other people do, are like that too. And I was like, oh, the other people are like that? And she said, yeah, you should come meet them. And I, I was like, all right, let's do this. So um, when I was 19, I got rid of all of the things in my apartment. I moved into a van. I went to Wisconsin, hooked up with the Renaissance Festival, and then I spent 2002 to 2005 traveling around the country, going to meet every single object manipulator who would spend time working on this thing with me. And uh, this was before YouTube, so mm. like you really had to go out there and meet the people. Yeah, you did. And yeah, you um, did. I started out with Renaissance Festivals. I moved on to county fairs and state fairs. And then uh, in 2004 was when the first circus 
asked me to come be a teacher and to work with them in uh, Somerville, Massachusetts. And so what were you teaching? What was that? Flower sticks. Uh, by that time, as I was doing all this traveling, people were putting contact juggling balls in my hands. I got to learn that with Michael and Jennifer Savajo from, uh, you know, uh, Sphere Play. Shout out. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. They're good people. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, and then when I started doing the circus stuff is when I really felt at home. Like that was what I was looking for. Mm. And so, um, so then kind of, I just reformatted what I was representing myself as, you know, in my own internal world and being focused more around circus. Mm -hmm. Um, because, you know, telling somebody you're an object manipulator doesn't really tell people anything (laughs) right? (laughs) in a sense, like, okay, you manipulate objects, but like, um, yeah, so I was doing Diabolo and rope dart and, you know, spinning fire and doing all of these things and, um, and still walking and rolling globe and just really like spending a lot of time on all of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and yeah, so that happened. Uh, I started school, uh, at Ohio state to get my bachelor's degree. My mom talked me into it in 2005. So I, I said, okay, all right, I'll give this a try. And, um, what was crazy about this is that I'm going through my classes and I arrive at the point and, and I'm not sure if I'm going to do like physics or chemistry or mathematics as my major. Mm-hmm. Um, and I get to the point that I'm in multivariable calculus and this is calculus talking about th- curves moving through three dimensions and like, how do you calculate the tangent to the line and the normal, which is like perpendicular to the direction that it's going. And how do you calculate things about surfaces interacting? And it was at that moment that I was just like, man, y'all are talking about the same thing I'm talking about, mm. <laughs> right? Like, right. like this is the same. It, it's not even different slightly. Right. It's just how you say it. Mm-hmm. Um, but then also I found out I could do the math. And I was in this really exceptional class with a lot of uh, very intelligent, very motivated people. I became really good friends with that professor. And she was like, man, that class was very unique. Every student in there was motivated. And right. so, you know, it, half of half way more than half of any success is a group effort right and like it's a community and i just keep ending up in these situations where i got this amazing people around me who are doing incredible things and and that was one of them and so um that's when my dedication both to object manipulation and mathematics really got intertwined Mm -hmm. and um i realized that I had been spending all of this time exercising these physical and mathematical principles through my body Mm. and that I was seeing it in the world that I was interacting with. Mm. And there are a lot of kinesthetic learners in the world who are not being taken care of in math classes. Mm. And that the number of people who are good at math is larger than the number of people who think that they're good at math. Absolutely. And it is a matter of communication and it is a matter of telling the story in a way that is interesting and telling it in a way that is understandable to each person. Yeah. And so, um, that is one of the things that I've been working on pretty intensely. And I, um, yeah. And just throw in the little, little bit. I, um, have a mathematics course for high school and early college students where I teach them how to spin poi. And then we go sit at um, computers and they learn how to do trigonometry and they learn how to do computer programming and they learn about operations on functions 
so that they can express the things that we were doing with the poi in a mathematical manner. Yeah. And so, um, so then we go back to movement, then we go back to computers, then we go back to movement. And so by um, moving back and forth between them, both we stay engaged in our body we stay engaged in our social interactions because I don't sit them at a computer alone. They're always at the computer in teams. And um, I have seen 12-year-olds go through this coming out after four hours like, wait, mom, wait, I'm not ready to get picked up. Like, I just got to do this one last That's thing. Nice. <laughs> you know? That's great. And it feels like a real, yeah, it's like really what I want. Yeah, you know, it's like, um, I remember, you know, somebody said to me once that, um, well, I don't know if they actually said this or if my memory just distorted it, but basically it was like philosophy is just intellectual farting until you see it in real life. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and I kind of like... Is it okay know, to laugh at a fart joke? Or it not? is okay. okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, well, I hope it is because I just told one. <laughs> yeah. But no, you know, I like, um, I, I can totally see how, because I think that like, you know, hearing your story, I'm, I'm guilty of not thinking I'm good at math. I mean, I almost went to the North Carolina School of Science and Math by some fluke. But, you know, I, I'm guilty of, of not thinking that I'm, you know, mathematical. And I think, I don't know, I guess I have kid envy right now because I think, like, if, if I had felt the force that my physics teacher was trying to tell me about, you know, or if I had felt the changes in inertia, you know, Obviously, I'm revealing how little I know about these phrases, but like, you know, if I, if I could have felt that, I think it would have made it, it would have gone from intellectual whatever to, you know, real life, you know, applications and things like that. And I, I want to, um, because I don't want to hop over this because so much of this new project that we're going to get into is about dance. And I've seen your show and I've seen you move. And then I know because we share the same community in ecstatic dance that you're a wonderful dancer and that you uh, do contact improv. And so clearly you're a dancer. I mean, does that, do you, do you self-identify as that? Um, I, I do identify as a zero gravity dancer. Okay. Um, I think I work really hard on dance. Mm. Um, I surround myself with really exceptional dancers. Mm. And so I have had the opportunity of maintaining a position where I am around people who are better than me mm. at but, the thing that I want to be good at. Really? And so, um, you know, out of, out of the, the Giant Leap Project, I, uh, I feel like the least experienced dancer. Mm. Well, I, I mean, after looking at the website and seeing who all is involved, I can see why you would feel that way, you know. Uh, and I'm down. Heavyweights, <laughs> you know? heavyweights, yeah. Well, um, so, so but what I'm hearing before we get into the giant leap, which is the next question, is it, it almost seems like you're saying that dance is a skill that you want to learn, but it's not. Do you feel natural as a dancer? I feel embodied. Okay. And I feel okay. that my physical experience is of great interest to me. And I have now uh, made a career for 18 straight years where I have made most or all of my money every single year on using my body uh, in front of other people in order to um, demonstrate the skills that I've been developing. And honestly, so that, um, like, I'm, what, what I'm not actually is a performer. Really? Yeah, that huh. actually is what um, I have to work on. That's the hardest part of it all for me. Huh. I can learn skills. I can be endlessly interested in digging into a complicated thing. Um, and the act of going out in front of people 
to share that thing is something that I have had to work on the entire time. And I have arrived at a kind of sequence of internal experiences that result in my best performances occurring when anything that was going on in my life kind of slides away when I get there. That as I'm putting on the makeup and as I'm putting on the costumes, I'm becoming who I am when I am in that state. Mm. And when I go out onto the stage, I look out into the audience and I see a lot of intelligent, emotional, connected brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers and children who deserve respect and are giving me the opportunity uh, to have their attention for a moment. And when I realize how powerful all of those people are and that they are giving me their attention for three minutes or six minutes or whatever it is, uh, my responsibility is to just really show up. Hmm. And so uh, when I really show up, I become ultra present. When I throw each ball, it is just that ball. Mm-hmm. When I'm moving my foot to reposition on my rolling globe, I am just moving my foot. Mm-hmm. And that state of being right now, all the way, with nothing else in my mind or my heart, except for where we're at together, is actually the thing that I think I'm selling. Mm. And so... Um, how, how does training prepare you for that? Which, or does it? I would think that it would. You're thinking about um, movement like, training? Yeah, like your practice, does it make you more present? Like, is it the... How does your practice work to make that moment happen better? Yeah, so um, there is a little less intensity in it when I'm practicing. Of course. Uh, Yeah, but I do get those moments of uh, extreme presence. Mm -hmm. And um, the thing about training is that you're still a whole person, right? You still have a lot of emotions. You still have Mm -hmm. a hurt elbow. You still have... all of the weird stuff that people have told you about your body that you have to deal with. Right. Right. I mean, man, we need to give more credit to how powerful our words affect our internal experience of our own bodies. Right. And, um, and that's part of what you have to get through when you're training, Mm. right. Is accepting all of that stuff and figuring out how you use it to accomplish the task that you're ready to accomplish. Um, and of course, right, training is like sometimes just skill building. Mm-hmm. You just have to do the work mm-hmm. to be able to do the thing Absolutely. that you want to do. Absolutely. Um, and so I feel like in training is when it's like my nice little bubble and I like to just go into the studio by myself and I just go in there from 10 p.m. to 1 in the morning or whatever and I just hide out and I can drop and I can throw and I can listen to whatever music I want. Mm -hmm. And, and so, yeah, I guess the training is about manipulating your mind and manipulating your body into becoming, um, and, and maybe it's even about expressing the things that you need to express in order to refine the craft into being what you wish to share. Right. That like, whatever there's, you know, the, the metaphor or the, the quote about like, you know, you, you don't create a, um, a statue out of the piece of marble. You like find the statue inside of the piece of marble. Right. And so in, um, in this case, I mean, as I'm 
expressing this right now, maybe, you know, an important part of training is figuring out, you know, what are the little channels that are the ones that you're going to bring out and share with everybody? Because the truth is everybody doesn't want to see everything. Yeah. I mean, it well, doesn't the, add, add value to their life. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And I would just, I, I want to make sure that I've, I've fully developed the character here because uh, speaking of training, like, you know, I think we haven't mentioned this yet. You, you sort of alluded to it earlier, but you're a science guy and you have, you are in the midst of pretty rigorous academic training. Do you want to talk about your, where, where you're at and, and what you've been working on? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I just finished my PhD. Congratulations, man. Everybody um, always gets the biggest smile. It must be a great feeling. Oh, man. Uh, I <laughs> was in graduate know. school for nine years. My God. Uh, they kind of warned me about that at the beginning when I accepted this project. Um, and But it's like experimental nuclear physics. And everybody else, I don't know. I didn't know what I was getting myself into is the truth of it. Um, <laughs> I just, they said, yeah, you know, here's, here's the experiment. You want to work on it. And so kind of just, I don't know how many other aspiring scientists there are out there, but I just will throw this out. Like when I first started looking at graduate schools, I got accepted to one where I was going to just go work at CERN uh, right away. That's a huge Hadron Collider in Geneva. Oh, okay. Yeah. And they were like, you'll take nine months of courses and then we're going to send you over there and you'll spend the rest of graduate school at CERN. And, uh, yeah, no, that sounds fine. It's a big famous project and everything. But when I started thinking about it, I was like, you know, there are 3000 scientists there and they're working on the biggest machine that humans have ever built. Right. And I want to touch the machine. I want to work on the machine. And it then did not sound all that appealing. right? Right. Um, and so I had opportunities to work at Jefferson Lab and then to work at Oak Ridge in graduate school. And um, eventually I found this project here at Duke and NC State. And they, I was just going to work with four people um, in the lab. And then there's kind of a slightly larger group of nuclear scientists that we work with. Um, mm-hmm. That's maybe about 10 people. And then there's like a larger group of about 40 people. And so it kind of goes in these tiers. And, um, and I went in there, man, and... Uh, after a year, I was pretty much in charge of my experiment, and uh, I learned how to do machining. I did a lot of electronics development. I, I can take my entire experiment completely apart and put the entire thing back together on my own, and I know every wire, and I know every connector, and I resoldered half of them myself, and uh, that's what I wanted. Uh, Mm. that's why I did experimental physics instead of theoretical physics. And I think a lot of people kind of, you know, hold the theoretical physicists up on a pedestal and they deserve it. They're incredibly intelligent people to make successes in that manner. But when you have to build a way of testing whether or not matter is responding in some way or not, it is a totally different beast and it's the kind I'm interested in. So, um, I do cryogenic studies on, uh, polarized helium three. So my, coldest I have made something is uh, 0.07 Kelvin. To give you a reference, our environment is about 300 Kelvin. Oh, man. Outer space is 2.7 Kelvin. And so I work at 0.07 Kelvin. Wow. Um, And actually, I don't work at it a whole lot. Um, I think the lowest actual real experiment that ended up in my dissertation was at 0.6 um, and so things are a lot different there. Super, we use superconductors. Um, so these are wires that have no resistance inside of them. And so current can just continue flowing through them. And um, I've specialized in a 
electronic device called a superconducting quantum interference device, which is the most sensitive magnetic field detector that humans can build right now. And um, they're very sensitive. They really pick up a lot of uh, electromagnetic noise. And so, um, so yeah, that I feel is my major contribution to these this experiment that I'm working on. Um, and the bigger experiment is that we are studying a thing called the neutron electric dipole moment. How you can think about it if you're not a scientist is that uh, we have a lot of evidence that a Big Bang may have occurred. Uh, I think people take it for granted and we kind of just believe that a Big Bang occurred, but um, you should definitely be skeptical about anything anybody tells you. Um, And there's about four or five really solid pieces of evidence that make it clear. Like there's inflation, right? And so all of the stars are moving away from us and there's a red shift. Um, The uh, Hubble constant is a thing, so that is accelerating as you go farther away from our point in the universe. The cosmic microwave background is uniform in all directions to within uh, a very small amount. And so, um, so that kind of demonstrates that things seem to have been smaller at some time. The one other thing that is uh, relevant is that the amount of small atoms that were created in the initial uh, Big Bang theory are consistent with the amount of small atoms that we see in the universe. And so mm. those are some of the really solid things. That's the real reasons we believe in the Big Bang. Right. One thing that isn't consistent is that we don't see equal amounts of matter and antimatter in the universe. Uh, antimatter is kind of like matter, but it's uh, is an, an opposite. So example, for example, there's an electron that has a negative charge, and then there is its antimatter particle, which has a positive charge. But other than that, they're the same. And so um, we don't see where all the antimatter went. And so finding out more about the electric dipole moment of the neutron is a way to try to figure out what might have happened in order to cause its evolution to be different, as in the evolution of antimatter through time. And just to be clear, antimatter and dark matter and dark energy are not the same thing. Some, okay. some people get confused about that, yeah, but was... they're, very, they're, they're all kind of different. And um, I understand that might have got a little sciencey, but... Well, that's okay. How lofty of a goal is this? You know, like, I mean, uh, are we looking at 100 years from now or five years from now before we figure this out? Or um, we're, uh, the, Actually, so there's some inconsistencies between what the standard model predicts, which is the model of physics that we use mostly, mm-hmm. and, um, and then if you include some other theories. Uh, and so we're basically just probing some range to see if it might fit in there. But mm-hmm. um, we'll find out. And well, then we validate or invalidate some theory. Well, I'm glad we got a chance to talk about that because... Um, you know, I I feel like now we sort of have a good sort of, you know, we've triangulated here and we have a good way to sort of push up into our, you know, our 3D, mm-hmm. you know, no pun intended given what we're about <laughs> to talk about. But let's talk about Giant Leap because that's, to me, like, it just seems even more apparent right now that this is kind of like where we were going or, you know, where your life was kind of. You know, and I'm not even one of those purpose-driven guys so much, but like it just seems like this was a natural convergence and point. So can you give us the, you can start with an elevator pitch or whatever, just let's hear about Giant Leap. Yeah, I just have to say about what you were just mentioning also is that um, science and art and dance and object manipulation are the same thing. Um, mm-hmm. There's no, it, it's humans who break it up. And um, I was told that by Story Musgrave, who is the most embodied uh, astronaut uh, that I've ever seen. And I got to talk to him a couple of weeks ago. Oh, wow. And he, um, he was just like, man, it's people who 
break that stuff up. Nice. You know, naturally it's not that way. And so, um, so for me, it's all one thing. Right on. And, um, so Giant Leap is a dance company that I have founded with Allegra Sura LaBelle. And we are the first zero gravity dance company in the United States. And our objective is to explore human body movement and weightlessness uh, on all of the many levels that that can be explored. Um, kind of as we've been talking, you know, I've, I've mentioned some things about what it means to be a whole human. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're not leaving any of those parts out. And uh, we definitely see an opportunity to frame the discussion about being a human in space. Uh, Right now, there have been humans in space since November 2nd, 2000. That's about 6,700 days. And have you heard anybody else talking about what the human is experiencing in space? Not really. Exactly. Not really. But if we're going to talk about people being there, then... Let's talk about people being there. Right, for sure. <laughs> right? For sure. Like science is great. Satellites are great. They're all really important. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we need to go be there. And part of that is an expansion of what we experience as humans, an expansion in what you can see, which is exceptionally important because if you can't see things, they don't normally feel real. Right, for sure. Um, and and then also internally, our physical experience is going to be modified through that. Mm-hmm. And because what we're talking about, I mean, just to make sure we've really delineated this, is gravity versus zero gravity. Yeah, yeah. And so this, you know, I find a lot of people are like, wait, zero gravity? What does that mean? Um, so in one sense, there is not actually zero gravity. There's um, microgravity, right? There's microgravity, exactly. Okay. So um, gravity permeate, permeates everywhere mm. in the universe. And, um, and we don't have an anti-gravity chamber. There's, there's nothing that we know of that cancels it. Uh-huh. And so um, basically what you end up doing is you just get your vehicle to be in just the right relationship to the Earth that relative to your vehicle, you don't experience a strong pool of gravity. Mm-hmm. And then that is what we call zero gravity. Do we feel that on like uh, some of these like really steep water rides and like uh, at roller coasters and stuff like that? Is there, is it, it, it like what somebody might feel on that? Is it any relation to what you feel? Yeah. So and if you're on a roller coaster and you kind of hit the top, mm-hmm. right, there's like that moment of lifting up. The difference in that is that you are aware that you're falling. Mm. Right. And you're like feeling the wind and everything. For sure. And okay. when you're in an airplane or when you're in a, spaceship not that i can say exactly what it's like to be in a spaceship i haven't been in a spaceship mm-hmm. um well i haven't been in a spaceship when it was flying <laughs> <laughs> in orbit. um you uh you end up reaching this state where you're not falling right by falling equally in every direction you then aren't concerned about that thing mm-hmm. and so it completely changes your physical experience um you know, there is no preferred direction. In zero-G dance terms, we refer to that, uh, what we have on Earth is a local vertical. So you have a direction that is preferred. And in zero-gravity, you get to choose whatever you want. And, you know, maybe long-term, what it's going to be is you need uh, an orientation on a spaceship so that people's minds can just handle it. Mm-hmm. Um but maybe the capacity to really learn how to think in all orientations 
is something that is achievable. Mm. And that is a task that I'm very interested in. Mm. Um, the, this thing where, you know, you see, say a cup or something laying on the ground, right? If you see it, it's almost always going to be on its top, on its bottom or at an angle, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? right? Like, yeah, right, like, right. and you have a lot of experience with that. Like all of your experience of cups mm-hmm. is like that. Mm-hmm. And so you can identify a cup in almost any orientation, right? Like right. However it's laying there, you, you have a f- understanding of what it is. Right. And so this task where objects get rotated, can you still identify what they are? Right. Sure. That's, that's a relevant thing. Sure. And so what is, I want to talk about the, the parabolic flights and all that, but what is the difference just so I can understand, like, let's say you're out in the space station. What is the difference between that sort of feeling of weightlessness and what you're feeling on these, these parabolic airplane flights? Yeah. So, um, a parabolic airplane flight is when you take an airplane and you fly it kind of in, uh, like a sine wave, right? So it's like going up and down and up and down. And um, if you use your hand to, to make that gesture, you'll notice that there is a point right in the middle as you're going toward the top, right? You're halfway up to the top that actually, if you want to keep following the curve, you have to start pointing your fingers more down mm-hmm. than they were a moment before. Mm-hmm. And so when the airplane flies in that trajectory, that moment, as soon as it starts tilting its nose down, is actually when the zero-G starts. Okay. And then you go over the top, all in zero-G, and then you come down over the other side, and then when the nose starts coming back up is when the zero-G ends. Okay. So you get about 25 to 28 seconds. Wow. Yeah. It's a short window. It's a short window, man. Uh, definitely, once it starts, it is time to get on it. Right, mm-hmm. like if you got a task, man, it's it's time to go. There ain't no time to wait. Well, how many times um, are the how many rises and does it do? Like how many weightless moments are there in the course of a flight? Yeah, so you get uh, in on the U.S. flight. So there's a company called uh, ZRG Corporation, and they do fifteen parabolas total, and then you get one Mars gravity, which is one third of Earth's gravity. You get two lunar gravities right on the moon that's one sixth of earth's gravity and then you do 12 zero gravity and so you kind of like go into it slowly right and um it's really fun lunar gravity is awesome yeah yeah definitely you can just jump really high but you feel it's still sort of relatable oh man yeah it's still relevant right you're still gonna go back to the ground um on my last one i jumped up into the air and i uh i did this like ninja kick because i was just like man i'm gonna you know totally be uh (laughs) some ancient shaolin monk like this is gonna be sweet and um it actually felt like i was suspended for a moment before i came back down and uh it got me thinking about this you know, thing where you can wiggle your body in some ways, right? So like you could jump up, have your center kind of high, hold it there as the rest of you catches up to it and then bring yourself back down. And I think there's some really beautiful artistic. Uh, okay. So that's, that that's where expressed. the flow nerd is coming out of me right now. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Cause so we've been talking about dance we're talking about flow. So what is it like to dance? If I, if I cut you off, I'm sorry. I'm just dying to know, like, what is it like to dance in zero gravity? Dancing in zero gravity is a total restatement about what 
your relationship is to your body and to your environment. It is quiet hmm. sensorily in the sense that it might be the first time in your life, and I feel really clear that it very likely is the first time in most people's lives when they weren't touching something. Yeah. Cause you, I, so I saw your talk and I found this part really fascinating when you're talking about like you had done sensory deprivation, you had done acupuncture, done all these things. And this was the most like non sensory experience you'd ever had. And that did, I think you said you couldn't even feel your clothes. Mm -hmm. Once you enter the state of, uh, of weightlessness for each of my flights, I have spent the first two parabolas just relaxing just calming my mind down, calming my body down, and allowing the first dance to be just the dance of my body, not the dance of my mind. Mm -hmm. And in um, some like 1960s Air Force and NASA uh, papers, they refer to a position called the weightless relaxed position where all of your limbs get to an intermediate position. So you're not in extension and you're not in contraction or flexion at all. And so I have just tried to calm down and see if my body can reach that state. And it is really amazing to just actually see what this tool that you've been using for your whole life does when it's on its own. Hmm. You know, right? Uh, and it took a lot. I mean, it's, I've done that four times now for four parabolas that I've uh, hmm. done this relaxation process. And each time I'm like, oh, I'm getting so much closer. Like I'm totally succeeding at relaxing. Yeah. <laughs> right? Right, 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 right. After all yeah. that hard work. After you're, all that hard work. <laughs> right on. Well, I mean, it must be, is it disorienting as hell? I mean, like, I mean, you know, I've heard, I've never been in a sensory deprivation tank, but I've heard that sometimes they're disorienting and can kind of create a little mini freak out at the lack of feeling. Mm -hmm. I have not experienced that. Uh, so I've done, so my training has been sensory deprivation chambers. Um, I mentioned the acupuncture and that thing just cause I, I had done all the, during my last CRG flight, I did sensory deprivation, indoor skydiving or tunnel flight, uh, and acupuncture all within two weeks of each other so that I could compare them. Okay. Gotcha. And, um, and then I do dancing and I do aerial harness work and, um, and so, uh, these, yeah, these are all parts of the training. And what happens in weightlessness is that your vestibular system kind of loses track of what's going on. So this is a set of tubes that are inside of your ear. They're actually inside of the bone and you have one that one set that determines acceleration in your head. So just like if your head is moving, how fast is it moving? And then you have a different one that's paying attention to your relationship to gravity. And so those are fundamental components in your, uh, what we would call proprioception. And this word proprioception just means your experience of your body and your experience knowing where it is, right? So for example, you could take your arm and put it out. And even if you close your eyes, you know, you could know where your arm is at. Right. Mm -hmm. Like I could ask you, close your eyes and, you know, high five me or something like that. And you're not going to, maybe we're not going to nail the high five, but yeah, you get close. I got the you, basics. you get yeah, it in the direction. Totally. Yeah, sure, sure. <laughs> right? Now in weightlessness, if you can't see it, then you have a high probability of losing contact with your body. 
because you have ingrained in all of your experiences every single time of where your arm is at, every time you've ever asked that question, it's been in relationship to gravity, right? Yeah. Um, and of course you can say, oh, well, if I'm underwater and I'm scuba diving, then that's different. And I'll talk about that in a second and why that's actually the same. But, you know, if you, if you do something like put your arm behind your back where you definitely can't see it, then at least for me and everybody else that I've, I've asked this question of part of your awareness of the orientation of your arm is related to the torque that you're having to apply through your muscles in order to keep it in that position. Wow. Right? That okay. like, sure. like you're feeling sure, sure. your muscle response is part of your awareness of how your body yeah, is. Yeah, like you're aware your arm's not falling. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 And you don't get that. That's mm. not an option. Wow. When you're in weightlessness. And so you have to figure out how to reconnect to your body. Um, Kitsu Dubois says that when you first go into it, you're just all eyes. Mm -hmm. And then you have to bring it back in to become a part of your body. And uh, I very much have found that exact same situation. Well, that, and, and maybe this is a good time to, to talk about Kitsu Dubois, but I, because I wanted to, so what you're describing is so alien to our experience, no pun intended, that how do you possibly train for that? Mm. So I was mentioning that I've been doing all of these other practices, right? Like the tunnel flight and the indoor skydiving. And um, so for those, the reason that I have, I have focused on, for example, tunnel flight is that in that practice, you're inside of a wind tunnel and it is blowing air up. And, um, you know, I'm sure a lot of your listeners are on the internet. And so you probably have seen videos of it and everything, right. um, you know, it's people like floating around inside of this big cylinder. That is an opportunity to practice planning where you're going to be in three dimensions as a result of your movement. Hmm. You also have an opportunity to get your body into positions that you can't comfortably get into in any other or in many other situations. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, so, um, fast movement planning is fast. Three dimensional movement planning is what comes from, um, the indoor or the tunnel flight. Uh, if you're scuba diving, then you have three dimensional movement planning, right? That you like have to move, you know, you're going to be moving up and down you're going to be sli you know, sliding under things. And if you're in a coral reef or a, know shipwreck or whatever like maybe sure. you're having to get inside of something mm -hmm. um and so i think that relationship is a little bit more obvious right mm -hmm. um uh and just to say about this being in the water thing the one thing that's really different and why it is not a perfect corollary to weightlessness is that you can always push against the water that's what right? i was gonna and say. that's what we're doing and so when i say weightlessness is this extremely unique experience it's because you can't push against anything then with the sensory deprivation chamber right okay what we're working on is uh allowing and, and i guess i should preface this by saying what is a sensory deprivation chamber right mm. so this is one of these uh little tiny kind of personal size pool that you get into and it'll be like 18 inches of water with a thousand pounds of salt dissolved in it. Mm -hmm. So you just float up to the top. Mm -hmm. And if the room is just right, they make the temperature be the same temperature as your body of the water and of the air. Right. Mm -hmm. So everything's all the same temperature. Mm -hmm. So you kind of have this moment of like not getting a lot of sensory input. Mm -hmm. And, um, and that, as you were saying, people freak out about that. Right. Mm -hmm. We're so used to having this constant pressure 
of information coming in through our skin all the time. And what happens when you tune that down a little bit? Well, you gotta, you gotta modify how you're, you're tuning your system and how you're expecting information to be coming in. And that mental task is an exceptionally important part of preparing ourselves for doing zero G dance. Mm. Um, and we really got an amazing opportunity uh, in March. Uh, I had previously gone and talked with this woman, Kitsu Dubois. She is a zero G dancer who started in 1990. She is a choreographer and she, uh, she's from Paris. She is extremely intelligent. She is extremely capable. She has the capacity to hold this vision and to just keep showing up for it. Mm -hmm. And the reason that you don't see a lot of other zero G dancers is that every project takes like four or five years for you to complete. And I talked to her and was just like, you know, what's the deal? Why aren't there more people? And she said, people just don't get how long it takes and that you're not going to get a one year turnaround. And that is hard for a lot of artists to accept. That's crazy. I <laughs> mean, I'm just sitting here as a professional artist. I'm just thinking, wow, that's incredible. Right. But if you keep at it, I mean, you've been doing it for more than four years. I've been doing it for yeah, more than for four sure. years, for right? Sure, like you sure. just keep at it, man. And you, you have the determination. That's the question. Who wants it? Mm -hmm. Right. Do you want it? Because if you do, then you'll express that by how you spend your time. Mm -hmm. And so, um, yeah, we had the opportunity to host her for some workshops and she came and met us at Smith College, uh, which is up in uh, Northampton, Massachusetts. And our four zero G dancers got together and some of the faculty and some of the students from Smith came uh, and joined us and her lifetime of experience. I mean, she's been doing this for almost 30 years, right? She has distilled it down into something that is comprehensible and something that is teachable and is something that is completely about your personal relationship to yourself and then shows you how to expand that out and allow it to be an interaction with another person. Wow. She... I mean, I've been doing, I've been training for five years in my way. And after two days of being with her, we came out as different people. Wow. I mean, so. That's quite a testament. Yeah. We started out with uh, two hours of time in a dance studio where we focused on feeling where our center line is and just really quieting down uh, how we're engaging in movement. And then she started talking about uh, and this is maybe where I start differing from the dancers in the sense that like, uh, I don't quite have the language that I find the other people in my group having yet on around this topic, but maybe that means I can communicate it to people who are not dancers as well. Right, 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 right. right, right. Um, so if we think about the, the tone of your body, right? Like, is it rough or is it rigid or is it like totally relaxed? Okay. Right. So those, those are, we call those tones. Okay. And, um, and so we each have a range and a lot of people I think are probably more geared towards the two tenths side. And then some people are, you know, a little bit too flexible and, you know, and then mm -hmm. there's everything in between. Mm -hmm. And so the amount of tone that she asked us to try to find was the amount where communication from one part of the body to the other part could happen 
but not to have any more engagement than the amount that allowed for communication of the information. In the sense that if somebody was to pull on my hand, I am not so relaxed that my arm just goes, right? And I'm not so tense that my whole body just immediately moves with it. Instead, my body is sequentially allowed access to the information that my hand is being pulled and it remains engaged enough that it, it you know, the information flows. Mm. And we've worked on that for quite a while. Mm. And that was a really profound change in my relationship to my own body. So you've been flowing and dancing forever. How difficult was it to do? Well, that's the thing, right? It's not a difficult, right? Like that, that I guess. We so could, there was no struggle. You just, you were just, you found it. Well, I guess, um, yeah, I think struggle, it works with me better than the word difficult. Okay, gotcha. <laughs> yeah, that's okay, where I was gotcha. at. Like a problem like, you're solving. Right, yeah, like difficult. It feels like, like oh, I'm hammering my thing against this. Okay, and, you gotcha. know, Like trying to get it through. Gotcha. Um, but yeah, the struggle or the, or the just the like not getting it, right? Like, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it took a, a number of minutes and then you have this one moment where you're like, oh, that's it, that's it. And then you go back and wait. And I think that's something that contact improvisation and modern dance, I have done a lot of modern dance classes and mm-hmm. um, that they teach very well that sometimes you just wait until it's all lined up perfectly and then you do and not to feel rushed about it Mm -hmm. and not, not to just try to get it every single time. Mm -hmm. And, and that thing about waiting and waiting and do you feel it and have you tuned in and have, you know, you calm down the stuff that you want to calm down and have you turned on the stuff that you want to turn on. Now let it go. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So you make make sure I understand the story. So she comes to you. You guys invite her to Smith, and you said there were other zero G dancers involved. Mm-hmm. Now, were they had they already done the parabolic flights? Mm. So, um, so yeah, I gotta reel it back a little bit to okay. what um, Giant Leap is uh, oh, to right. answer that question okay. well. So Giant Leap was started by Allegra Surlabelle and myself. Mm-hmm. Um, she is the U.S. National Coordinator for World Space Week. Wow. This is a U.N. initiative from the U.N. Committee for Peaceful Uses of Outer Space uh, to engage people in space activities. So every year from October 4th to October 10th, they help people around the country get or have space events. You know, if, And sometimes it's super science-y, sometimes it's just folks who like to look at the moon and that's great right mm-hmm. uh, looking at the moon i'm all for it man let's do it while we can <laughs> you know, like, definitely enjoy the moon um and so uh so she has been working in space in that way and she's a dancer um i think she's she's danced on a number of different continents and um and when we first were introduced by a mutual friend uh we realized that we had similar communication styles and we had similar visions and her vision, you know, for what she's really aiming for is a little bit different than mine. And like the long sense, like we both have very big space artistic goals that we're wishing to accomplish. And they're just like totally parallel to each other and totally with each other. And so we basically were like, okay, are we taking on this project? Yeah. Are you in? Yep. Are you in? All right, let's do this. And so uh, we had been meeting for a year prior to this, uh, weekly meetings, 
building up the stuff, getting the 501c3, getting, you know, like doing all the little, right. what's the business going to look like? And, um, and so now we're at this point where we have thought about who we would like to be our dancers. Okay. And so um, one of them is Tony Craig, and she is a student at Smith. Uh, she's working on her MFA in choreography, wow. and uh, she's my partner, and we've been together for six years, and she's totally awesome. Yeah. And, um, and so she has studied body-mind centering a lot, uh-huh. uh, which is an internal practice uh, that really, I mean, I'm as ignorant as a person who's just peripheral to it right so right, maybe sure. my description is not the best thing to go on but um so it's a sketch yeah it's a sketch they study body systems and they talk about uh fascia and they talk about the um different rhythms that the organs move upon and the uh, cerebral spinal fluid uh pulse and things like this um and she's a massage therapist and uh just really really deeply embodied mm-hmm and then we have Jeremy Klein, who is a uh, another MFA student. He's in Iowa and a uh, super skilled dancer, like totally rocking it. Um, yeah, can do crazy handstand flippy things that, you know, it, <laughs> you, you know, you watch these things and you're like, yeah. man, I'd hurt myself. I got coordination in me. Right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, coordination totally. in me. Um, and, then, uh, and then Allegra. And so she's a dancer and a choreographer. And uh, we all do contact improvisation a lot. And so uh, these are the core dancers that we are currently working with. Um, and so when I say R0G dancers, that's the set of four dancers that I'm talking about. Okay. Yeah. So we brought all them together. We had the Smith College professors and students. Um, and then one of the really deeply moving things was going to a pool. Uh, a swimming pool and we floated around inside of the pool and we tried these practices of allowing our bodies to be in this somewhat relaxed state that I was kind of describing the zero G relaxed state. Um, and then we moved into some stuff where we were totally underwater with goggles and nose plugs and interacting with each other, like pulling each other and pushing and feeling how is it that you influence the other person's body and how is it that they influence your body and having been on two parabolic flights so far, I think that was the thing that was as close to zero G as really? I've experienced on earth. Hmm. Okay. And there's the challenge that, you know, you got to breathe uh, sometimes. And so you pop up and take a little breath, but um, yeah, her set of practices were deep and thorough and she really moved us along quite a bit really quickly. And she just is such a wonderful person mm. and so passionate about the work and so willing to share. I cannot hold her on a higher pedestal like she made it herself. <laughs> you know? She sounds exceptional. Yeah, really great example of how to, how to interact with other artists who are interested in the thing that you're interested in. Mm-hmm. Right. Cause that can be really hard as an artist mm-hmm. to accept that other people are going to be doing art that's similar to yours. And, uh, and, and then there's the thing where like people can't copy your art actually. Yeah. Right. And you got to deal with that too, but you think they are, but actually they can't. Yeah. You know? totally. So, no, no, um, totally. So yeah, her just maturity in that level really, uh, showed me a little bit about who I want to be. Right. Like you should surround yourself with people who you want to imitate. Yeah, absolutely. You know, that's so funny. It's just, it's like the, the island artist gets lonely on the island, but then doesn't want anyone to show up on the island. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what I mean? Um, well, uh, so I'm dying to know why all this matters. 
So we start out as babies, or at least most of us did. Everybody I know did, right? And we start growing up and we start crawling and we start touching things and we start tasting things and smelling and, you know, going out into the world and feeling the world. And it is through that sensory experience that our brains start to organize how we're going to interact with the world, right? And it's literally like that turns into how your neurons organize themselves. Now, there is a theory called the embodied cognition. And this idea extrapolates those base physical experiences and describes how those also develop the foundations of our conceptual and metaphorical worlds. Now, we have a lot of philosophies in the world which like to separate the mind and the body, as if there is a rational or a moral reality that is separate from our physical experience, right? Mm -hmm. And embodied cognition demonstrates a way to look at this where actually it's all coming from our physical experience in the world. Hmm. And so one of my favorite kind of examples of how there's this really strong relationship between what we physically experience and what happens in our conceptual and metaphorical worlds uh, is the uh, thing that we all use that seeing means the same thing as knowing, even when there's not a thing to see. Right? Mm -hmm. Like, I could ask you, you know, did you see where I parked my car? Is that okay? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. That's, you, you fully understand that I'm asking you if you have the information about the location of my car. Sure. On the other hand, I could say, all right, I just explained all this stuff. Do you see what I mean? There's not actually a thing to see. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the number of examples are nearly endless. So, on kind of a deeper level, this starts to question whether or not this type of metaphor is, you know, just a turn of language, right? Do we just use it because other people use it? Or is this a living metaphor that we develop, right? And some people might say, I hear, I hear you, right? That's like another, mm -hmm. and, uh, or I feel you is, right? And so, um, so there seems, in my reading, I'm convinced that metaphors are in fact a living, real thing that we are creating right now and that this foundation in your physical world, developing the structure of your conceptual and metaphorical and relationship world is so clear that if we consider how much our physical environment influences our metaphorical world, we could ask a question about what happens when we change the physical environment that you're in. Mm -hmm. So you can kind of think about like if I took all of your neurons and I just drew a picture of them all on a piece of paper, right? And I like reinstantiated you on a piece of paper and now you have to interact with piece of paper world and you have to make all your decisions based on like how things happen on a piece of paper, then you would definitely know for sure in every one of your experiences that the sum of the interior angles of a triangle is 180 degrees. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Like you would be sure about that. Like every rule you need about the world, you just set it up with that and everything's going to be okay. Right. 
But if I drew you on the surface of a sphere, now those rules about the triangle are actually different. And you come up with an entirely different set of descriptions about how the world actually operates. Now, if I drew you in a gravitational field, you're going to know that you can always pour your coffee and it's going to go into the cup. Mm-hmm. You can know that things that are above other things rest on top of them. And you would know that you could use that not only to describe how you stack your luggage, but you could use that to describe how the relationships are between people in your business. Mm. And you could use that to describe who dominates who else in an environment. Mm -hmm. And that is a direct expression of a physical thing influencing our conceptual and metaphorical world. Mm -hmm. So now the question is, when we take a person who is completely formed in gravity and we take them off of the gravitational piece of paper and we put them in a place that doesn't have that rule, what is actually left of the human, right? Like we've removed the matrix upon which you are drawn. And that's the question that we're addressing. Mm. Who are we? And this has an opportunity to kind of differentiate between ourselves and the thing that is the most powerful influence in our life. Mm. And not only are the possibilities for internal exploration of our body, as in the internal exploration of every individual's body in their own world, you know, just like thinking this, you know, what is the difference between me and gravity? Not only can that be a really powerful, transformative experience for individuals, uh, but it can start to challenge like, well, why do I have to set a candle up so that it's oriented in this way, right? Like, what if I look at it from the other direction? And what if I lay on the ground and I look at the ceiling and I consider uh, you know, that direction to be the floor and just to feel this like crazy juxtaposition of your perception of the relationship between your body and the space around you. Mm. These are all valuable mental exercises, which are consistent with the type of thought experiments that we perform in physics. Hmm. Wow. It's, it's fascinating. I mean, it, I mean, with, with what you just said, it, it, it's it's like you know it's just a whole it's just a whole bigger meaning to the idea of space exploration in a way i mean not just not just space itself but the qualities of space mm-hmm. and just the you know it, it is so you know we don't we just it's almost like we take gravity for granted we do you know and you're right and and, and so much like just just our poetic language the way we rise up the way we fall down you know, like so much of our poetry, so much of the way we describe human experience mm-hmm. uses those gravitational ideas. I mean, you know, duh. Yeah. Life is gravity, mm-hmm. you know, and, uh, and, and it's interesting, you know, um, to think about, we were talking about this at the party off the mic, but it's just the connective tissue that is gravity or the experience of gravity, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, kind of an interesting thing it's like it, it, it seems like this giant leap program is is 
moving off into it's almost like establishing something there to pull other people there you know to bring back you know bridge is such an overused word but it just almost seems like you're developing this connection to Mm -hmm. this place of where we don't feel that usual gravity Mm -hmm. and then bringing it back kind of like nasa Mm -hmm. you know bringing back you know the discoveries of space it sounds it's just a fascinating concept i the sci-fi nerd in me just wants to know what would it be like to be born in space i think that's a very excellent question that other people are extremely interested in as well you know it's just uh i mean the you know the challenge is how long is it going to be before that kind of happens on accident right (laughs) Right? (laughs) that's a pretty extreme thing to do to a person or to do to two people really right um and uh, yeah, I think it's probably going to be a little while before we get an answer to that type of question. Um, and, you know, because right now there are things like um, the the bone density of astronauts decreases as they're spending time in space. And there are reports about their arteries hardening. and um, And so it looks like being in space is not very healthy for us. Uh, and so the question is how long can you spend there, right? Like some people have just recently spent a year up there and, um, we, I mean, it, it's at some point somebody's going to get stuck and then we're going to find out really what it's like to adapt. Wow. And I'm not saying it's a good thing and I'm not saying it's a bad thing, mm-hmm. uh, but it's probably going to be an accident. Mm-hmm. <laughs> not an accident like a spaceship blows up but an accident and then like oops you know you just went on this mission that took too long and spaceship didn't get where it's supposed to go or <laughs> whatever right um so yeah so anyways yeah i um so connecting the why to the how what's the how of giant leap mm-hmm. so what's the uh, future of it yeah, that I ask this question every day, <laughs> uh, and that's what you have to do. You mm-hmm. got to ask the question every day sure. if you really if it's a question you want an answer to. Mm. <laughs> you know, so I. Um, that's a good life lesson, actually. Yeah, you got to keep asking because you mm-hmm. don't know what the answer is going to be, and if it changes, that's okay. That's okay. <laughs> it's okay. Find out why exactly. <laughs> it changed. Right? Um, so, on the immediate docket, we are taking all of our dancers and we're going to Seattle and we're going to do a couple of weeks of training up there. And, uh, that will involve indoor skydiving, the tunnel flights that will involve the float tanks, uh, dance time, pool time. Um, we already are in conversations with some universities and some businesses there who are willing to donate some time and, uh, and some facilities. And, and then if it all really goes well, uh, we're going to end it with a zero G flight on the zero G corporations plane. And I think that would just be really exceptional to have three weeks of training butted right up against a zero-G flight. Um, on all of my previous flights, I've taken a couple of weeks or a month of you know, really getting centered prior to going on the flight. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm really looking forward to the opportunity to sharing my ideas about this with the rest of my crew and to walk them through on a very concrete and clear timeline so I, the audio video geek is wondering how do you film that yeah so I mean, does it take a special camera to be in 
No, any most cameras can go there. Okay. I mean, if you can turn a camera sideways and nothing happens, then okay, it's gotcha, going to be fine gotcha, up there. Gotcha. Yeah, um, the the company has GoPros that are just hanging on the walls, mm-hmm. uh, and then you basically have a camera person who holds the camera and is also experiencing the same thing that you are, mm-hmm. right? And so, with our uh, previous training, I have tried to get our camera guy in and talk with him and. Uh, discuss as much as possible about the zero G training as we can. Mm-hmm. Um, and I definitely am focused on appreciating the physical experience of the camera person as much as the experience of the dancers. You know, like I was saying before, when I'm talking about performing in front of people, like we're all doing this together, right? Like none of this is an isolation. Yeah. It all takes a team, especially anything related to space. Yeah. And so, um, so yeah, shout out, shout out and lots of love. <laughs> like really, uh, I'm doing my best to appreciate the challenge that we're asking someone to approach there. Right. Yeah. I mean, just, you know, I mean, I, so my, I, my background is visual art and I came through the schools as a sculptor and who you got to be your photographer was a big deal. It is. It matters. And it really- it's worth the money. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So the biggest thing that we are really excited about and is kind of the the pinnacle of what we're aiming for right now is going and doing an actual fully choreographed zero-G dance video that is just focused on dance. And you can think about the most relevant, recent, kind of well-produced artistic piece that has happened is this OK Go video that came out a couple of years ago, and it is fabulous. If you have not watched that, definitely go watch that. Um, and they had two Russian dancers on in the video, and they did a, a wonderful job. But we um, are going to do a piece that is just focused on, on the dancers. And uh, we have a set of computer programs that I have written in order to simulate the human body and weightlessness. And we can utilize these programs to help develop realistic physics and realistic uh, choreographic expectations when you're in weightlessness. Part of this thing about changing the way you perceive things so much is that the fundamental relationship between your angular momentum, which is something that, you know, we at least have heard of this term before, right? It's a thing that doesn't change once you're, you're floating. Um, and the orientation of your body, uh, the relationship between the angular momentum and how your body is results in rotations that are non-intuitive. And so you have two options. One is to go to space and really have a lot of time to play with this. The other is to do something like write computer programs so that we can try to understand it in advance. And that's the much more affordable option because right now going to space costs about $50 million. So, um, so we're going to combine the choreographic experiences or the choreographic skills of some of our dancers with my ability to share realistic expectations through these computer programs. And we are going to express what does it look like when you really come up with a plan to go into weightlessness and to make some beautiful piece of art. 
And so right now our objective is to accomplish this in October of 2019. Uh, it's pretty ambitious and yeah. we're working really hard on it. It sounds really ambitious. Yep. Well, you gotta, yeah, yeah, you gotta space. <laughs> well, right. The, uh, set of ideas with a, a timeline that you are actively working to accomplish is how you set goals. Absolutely. And Absolutely. And that's what we're doing. We're setting our goals and we're, we're working really hard on getting there. Um, and so that's the thing that we're most excited about sharing with everybody. Well, I, as I listen to this project and I'm not, a, I'm not really a science guy, but I am. And I, and, I, and you're challenging me and inspiring me to like make the connection again, you know, to reconnect all these things. It's just been blowing my mind listening to you talk about this project. And I'm so glad that you came on the podcast to share it with me and to hear about it. And I'm sure I'll get loads of questions from people about why didn't you ask this? And why didn't you ask that? But I just find it so fascinating. And I don't know. I, you know, I, I got to say, like, I, I, I don't like to believe in tribes anymore, but you do feel kind of like tribe to me because I know you from the flow world and stuff. And so, like, there's this enormous, like, sense of awesome that I feel for you because you're one of us, just a lot smarter. <laughs> but, you, you know, you're going out and doing this thing. You know what I mean? You're trying to take dance into space. And I know, you know, I'm so glad we got into the why, because I understand it's so much more than just dance and body control and that sort of thing. But it's just such a, it's just, it's just really like it, what you're helping me do is sort of broaden my whole perspective of what space exploration is. Good. You know, that it's, it's more than just about, can we get to Mars, mm -hmm. you know? And so it's about who will we be? Absolutely. When we get to Mars, right? Absolutely. That is a relevant question that we should be very interested in. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, uh, just let's, um, let's connect, let's give a chance for people. And I'll have all this in the liner notes of this podcast and everything, but how, how do people find out about the project if they want to do their own research on it, how they connect to you? What's yes. your social media? Yeah. So we have, uh, if you didn't know this, you can get a dot dance account. Uh, or dot dance I URL. I that and I thought so, it was some weird redirect. Or something. Oh no, no, we got zero, uh, giantleap.dance. Okay. And uh, then you can find us on Instagram, also giantleap.dance, uh, Twitter, giantleapdance, and Facebook, giantleapdance. Right uh, on. And then, uh, and then you can email us at outreach at giantleapdance.com. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and uh, we're really, really enthusiastic about engaging with people uh, through our social media accounts. And so if, folks are into connecting with us on there um we understand and value that this is a a real group project and i want to be the you know appreciated by and deserving of the appreciation of all of the people who have to come together to bring this together and everyone everyone i know you you know everybody in the dance community everybody in the science community who i'm hanging out with they're all a part of this whether or not they're like actively pushing on it right now and our you know our many friends out there in the world online are a huge part of it and that's you know you guys are who we're trying to communicate with right. and who we're reaching out to yeah. and uh we hope that this really enriches your lives and so so if you, you know, really are feeling what we're talking about, please connect and reach out and let us know uh, that it's 
you know, resonating with you because uh, it's, it's really, it's really important. Well, absolutely, man. I mean, I, I was excited to hear you talk about it. I was excited on Sunday night to hear you talk about it. And even now I'm just even more excited. And just to echo something that Adam said, he's a good dude. You could go to the website. Every person that's involved in this project is just top of the field, it seems like, or at least just that eager rookie astronaut kind of you know personality just to, just to be bold and go there. And just to echo what he said, you know, one of the cool things about the internet and what it is now is that we pass the information to each other and you have a chance to help other people find out about this awesome project by sharing it, liking it, whatever. It's free. It takes two seconds and you might learn something and you might want to be a part of the project at an even greater level than just supporting it on Instagram. So I just, I really encourage you just take the second to just click on these things, you know, because sometimes we get so depressed in the, the limits of our own world that it's good to go into that, no pun intended, outer space of our, you know, our comfort zone and, and learn about all these other projects. So thank you, Adam, for coming on here. Uh, I wish you luck with it. And thank you guys for listening to the Future Hero podcast. This is one of the interviews I do, I'll be bringing back episodes and all kinds of uh, meditations. But uh, thank you so much for pressing, pressing play. Take care, and we'll see you next time.